All right, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We'll be reading through 13, verse 14. Last time I printed out for you the, that whole section on the handout, and I highlighted for you all the sections that were the fifth commandment. We saw that it was overwhelmingly the fifth commandment that was being said and the applications of it. And so we're going to read it again, and then I'll immediately continue to move into, because last time we uh, didn't get that far into the application of the fifth commandment uh, as it's systematically laid out in the larger catechism. So, Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, we talked about that section is sort of the hinge thesis as we're moving on from the focus on the gospel proper in terms of our need for salvation, and then the way in which the grace of God is given to us in Christ Jesus. That's the focus in the first 11 chapters. And we've moved out of, in chapter 11, the idea that the Jews have not had the promises given to them broken by God, but rather that God plans what he's always planned, what he's always prophesied, which is to save a remnant. And then also, later on, having torn the nation of Israel out of the olive tree, to after grafting in Gentile nations to graft back in the Jewish people. And so there is this plan to use the converting of the nations to make the Jewish people jealous. And so that is laid out. So then there's a moving on from there after this doxological statement about the glories of God and his work of salvation. We move into this hinge statement about because of all of this, therefore live your life as an acceptable sacrifice to God. So we move into verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patience in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that idea of the vengeance section, we then move into 13, where the magistrate is set up as the avenger, as God's authority, a minister of wrath. So giving way to, let, to wrath is not taking vengeance in your own hands, but leaving it to God, and God has set up the civil magistrate to take vengeance as his representative. And we've seen how chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, does not say to obey anybody and everybody with a badge and a gun, but rather that we're to evaluate whether they meet these qualifications And so we spent significant time on that. Verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And we talked about verse 8 there, the principal point there, given the context, is the idea of don't submit to unlawful authority, only give what is owed. And so the law of God defines for us what is owed. And so the reality of not allowing our consciences to be controlled by the doctrines and commandments of men makes it so that we understand the limits of authority. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Love is defined by the law. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. So there's an equating there. The law of God teaches us how to love. Love means do what the law says. And then he explains that. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, so the idea that if you love someone, you're seeking their good and not their harm. If you're seeking someone's harm, you're hating them, not loving them. And so the law teaches us how to seek someone's good. And what has been given here are all the commandments in the second table. How do you love your neighbor? And what's, we're also told, there's no explicit laying out of the fifth commandment, but obviously all of this about knowing your place, finding your gifts, being humble, outdoing each other and honoring each other, honoring legitimate authority, those are all applications of the fifth commandment. So we have the fifth commandment is the dominant theme, and then there's this laying out of the other commandments. Verse 11, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So we've walked through that text and we're spending time on the fifth commandment systematically. And so look at the handout now. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the applications of the fifth commandment. And so last time we, you know, we had the, the service for covenanting and baptism. And at the time before that, we were in the fifth commandment and we were going through it. And we went through the duties of inferiors to superiors. And so now we're going to continue on and talk about some of the ways that uh, we can fail there. So I'd like you to jump down to page four. I reprinted some of the things we talked about in terms of the duties of those who are under authority to those that are over them. But we're going to pick up, and I just wanted to have you have it all in one place. We're going to pick up at question 128. Okay, what are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places and their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections. Cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. So, I'm afraid to break this down and help to make it easier for application. What's neglect? Well, we, we went through the positive duties last time. Remember, neglect is a failure to perform. It's omission. It's the failure to do something you have a duty to do. So, it talked, we talked about the duty to respect and fear, to give positive honor, to thank to give thanks for and pray for, to imitate the virtues and graces of our superiors, to obey, submit, be faithful, provide defense of them, to provide for their maintenance as is appropriate based upon the station, and to bear with the weaknesses of superiors and to cover the weaknesses of superiors in love. And we talked about exceptions to that in terms of things like criminal behavior. So we, as we look at this, it's easy to not do those things. It's easy. It's easy in our culture. In some cultures, it's not that easy because you will get shame if you don't properly honor people, right? In cultures that have honor, honor cultures, shame cultures, right? our culture hates honor so much that when it refers to cultures that have a sense of honor, we call them shame cultures, okay? That's how we think about cultures that have a sense of honor. We call them shame cultures. Shame, when shame is associated with evil, is a glorious thing. When you are ashamed of doing evil, it encourages you to repentance. Now, a culture where everybody accepts everything and does not care about your behavior is a culture that is seeking your death. It is flattering you. It is lying to you. It is pretending that your actions and your words do not affect anybody else and don't affect you. And it's a lie. Whether there are external signs of honor and shame or not, everybody acknowledges that some things are better than others. And cultures where there's an honoring of good behavior encourage good behavior. And it helps you to get the signals. The Bible warns us against flatterers. Flatterers are seeking your destruction. They are laying a trap for you. And a culture that accepts you, even when you do evil, is a culture that is setting a trap for you and saying, 
die in your sins. I care not for you. I do not want the discomfort of showing you that what you're doing is evil. I would much rather flatter and flatter and smile and walk away and laugh at your destruction. That's the reality. That's what a culture that doesn't have honor as a part of it does. So it's important. Christian culture is going to not neglect honor, but instead properly give honor to people when they are in appropriate stations and when they have shown gifting, when they are aged. Those are things that deserve honor. Now, there's a, it, there's a tendency, we're going into the negative actions, there's a tendency to envy at other persons in terms of their gifts and the things that they have, and also their places. Now, so what's envy? Envy is an unlawful discontent with one's station and the station of others. Unlawful desire toward what is not your own. To desire to obtain through unlawful means or regardless of means or through evil means. Okay? It's a good thing to desire improvement through lawful means. If you are in a condition where you find yourself to be not very gifted and you desire to be more useful, it is appropriate to seek to study, to practice, and to receive mentorship to seek to become more useful. That is good. That desire is a good desire. It's a godly discontentment. And a desire to become more useful is good. And what that does, whenever you have a desire and you're not able to fulfill the desire, that is a reminder of your conscience to apply the lawful means. Okay? Young men, you want a wife? Whenever you have a desire for a woman, you are called to the purpose of saying, I need to find profitable employment. I need to do lawful means to seek to find an honorable wife. That's what that's to drive you on to. If you are tired of poverty, your job is to figure out how to become more valuable in what you generate and to be able to do lawful work to increase your estate. Those are the things that are lawful means for lawful desires. If you say, I want to be wealthy by unlawful means, you steal or you demand things from other people, and these are the kinds of things that are envious, covetousness. So lawful desires for good things and the desire to apply lawful means is good desire. A lack of concern about the means and wanting the end is envy, or being unhappy that somebody else has it and wanting to take it from them is envy. Many want the honors of station. Many want the power to do as they please. Many want the praise and glory of the limelight. But few want the burdens of rule. Few want the rootedness that the good use of power requires. If you want power and you're not rooted to a place where you tie your interests to that place, then what you want is to make those people your playthings. Power and rootedness should go together. One of the great abuses in Roman Catholicism that existed in the Middle Ages was having single priests or bishops that had offices in multiple churches. And the desire to collect revenues from multiple churches without being rooted or grounded in a particular geographic location and having responsibility for those persons. If you are not a part of that local congregation, you ought not to have the rule over them in the direct way. Now, how does that work with Presbyterianism? Well, you have a council that has a shared jurisdiction, and your congregation is a part of that jurisdiction. And so it's joint rule, and you see the collecting 
of those courts of appeal, you are part of that jurisdiction. And so this idea of, of seeing a rootedness, the goal of seeing yourself as a part of the people that you govern and having an identity with them. If you want the scrutiny and accountability of office, the limelight and praise are fun. Scrutiny and being held accountable for failures, not fun. So these things, people want all the fun parts and don't want to deal with the other part. The other part is a heavy burden. But it is worthy of carrying the burden for the goal of glorifying God with authority. Increased authority is about the power to do more good work. Increased authority is about the power to do more good work. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, he who desires a bishopric desires a good work. So, envying at the station ought to be replaced with the desire to be disciplined for service. The desire to serve where one is now and to develop one's gifts and talents and improve the property under one's own rule so that one will be fit and equipped to greater things. The desire for reward is good. It must be associated with the desire to use the lawful means. Desire is well directed to use the lawful means. So you should pray and apply the word to acquire the desired object. The humble will be exalted. Humbling yourself involves the discipline for service. So wherever you are right now, apply the God-given talents that you have to the things that are already under your authority. And if you are a good steward of little, there is an expectation that you will be made a steward over much. That is the general tendency of things. However, if you are a bad steward of what you have, even what you have will be taken from you. Even what you have will be taken from you. So the contempt of authority, of the person and place. Contempt is a hatred or disdain. It's a treating as low value, of treating something as vile, treating something as, as worthless. So let me ask you some questions I encourage you to, to, to meditate on for yourselves. Do you see the value of godly civil magistrates? Because we have ungodly civil magistrates so often, we so frequently are prone to say these people are a cause of distress, and that's true for ungodly magistrates. They are oppressors. That's true for ungodly magistrates. But the value of the civil office and the value of godly magistrates. So if you know any lawful magistrates, because they are rare in our time, they ought to be given high honor. High honor. If you know pretenders, be careful to not give them the honor that is owed to those who are lawful. The same is true with church office. Do you see the value of godly ecclesiastical ministers? Do you treat lawful ministers with high honor? Do you give honor to pretenders? That's something that you ought to be careful not to do. The same with the household. Do you see the value of godly employers, husbands, fathers, mothers, managers, and tutors? These lawful managers of estates and households, these lawful guardians of estates and households should be given high honor. And these can be the kind of messiest of situations and we can, because these are the closest to our lives, when we deal with things in terms of employment and the household, 
it is easy to sort of put on the mask because it is there's so much that you'd have to deal with in terms of confrontation in the closest relationships. And so the funny thing is, the things that are closest to us are often the ones we most frequently fail to do our duties in because they require the most consistency. And so this demand for our consistency in the things closest to us is something we often collapse in. So considering carefully, how do we not hate or disdain the authorities that are lawful, even though we're often seeing unlawful authorities enact things around us? So rebellion. Rebellion is a term that is used widely or in a way that's loose in our culture. Rebellion is very specifically unlawful resistance. Okay, so there's lawful resistance. You, you can have lawful resistance. There are many examples of it in the Bible. But rebellion is when you have a lawful authority and you are rejecting the lawful authority. So rebellion is a very serious matter. It's, it's shown to us as a capital crime in Exodus 21 striking of parents. Uh, in Deuteronomy 17, uh, someone who refuses to heed the commands of, of, of a, a, a judge or of someone on an ecclesiastical court. Uh, Deuteronomy 21 talks about the uncorrectable child who even after being chastened will not heed and rebels. And these things are very serious matters. When somebody is in open resistance to a lawful authority, an open and unjust resistance against authority, that's rebellion. So, rebellion involves plainly rejecting the authority when they have a lawful claim on you. Now, this can manifest itself in a few ways. You can, you can have the plain statement of, I reject your authority, and you can also have the testimony of action. Okay, the testimony of action. You can say, yeah, I, I accept that, and then go do the opposite thing. Right? And so that doing the opposite thing is a more plain, more powerful witness to rebellion. And so when there's repeated non-performance, when there's repeated rejection of some sort of a command, that can be a testimony of rebellion. So let's think about the categories of lawful counsels, lawful commands, and lawful corrections. So we have a tendency to hear counsel and to have a sort of envy toward it. We we angrily listen to counsels or lawful superiors wishing that we didn't have to listen. Um, we, we find hearing counsel sometimes to be burdensome. Sometimes we wish we were the ones giving the advice as opposed to having to listen to it. Uh, we can have contempt towards the lawful counsels. Do we assume that the person giving advice, the father, the mother, the employer, that they're wasting our time? That they're nagging? Right? That they're pestering us with petty complaints? So let me ask a question. In general, who would be better equipped to tell if a correction or counsel is petty. The one in authority who has to think about the bigger picture or the person who's more narrowly focused, who's under authority. 
The person who's in authority has more concerns than the person who's under authority, typically. They have more that they are responsible for. And if they're choosing to give time to confront about it, it's because they think it's worthy of their time. And so that should make it so that on its face, if somebody in authority over you is, is bringing advice to you that they think it's worthy of attention in comparison to the other things in their domain. And so to consider that advice giving as nagging is something that should be carefully avoided. Now, with commands, do you desire to usurp the commanding authority? Do you act as though the commanding authority has no value? Do you act as though the lawful authority has no place to give commands? Right? We, we don't like commands. The more personal control is that's exercised, the more our flesh bucks against it. Right? The more distant a, an authority is, the easier it is to deal with them. Familiarity breeds contempt. Why is that? Because we are fallen and we see the failings of those who are in authority over us more clearly when they are closer to us. And so it is easier to throw it off. And here's the other thing. The more closely connected authority controls more. Right? A head of household controls a lot more than the head of state does over your individual life. The head of household controls a lot more about your life than a church officer. And so the level of detail and the closeness and the insight you have into the failings of the people who are closest to you makes it so there's particularly strong temptation to reject lawful commands and to become haughty under it. And the same is true with correction, right? What's, the command is, you know, do this. The correction is, this is a better way to do this. And so when we, when we think about corrections and commands <laughs> and counsels, we get more of it from the closer authority and we're tempted to throw it off more, and we're tempted to disregard them more. And so the household is the training ground for all other institutional order. If there is not order in the household, then there will not be order in the other institutions if that same head of house governs those other institutions. We're told by the Apostle Paul that how will someone govern the household of God if they cannot govern their own house? And so the idea of learning to deal with that. It's, it's, in some ways, there's greater temptation to throw off, but at the same time, with children and servants, with children, you have them from their youth, and with servants, you're providing them more direct blessing, things like pay. And so there are things that help to give grounds for the ability to control there. Now, I'm going to move into cursing. There's a lot more that could be said about those categories, but for time, I'm going to move into cursing. Cursing is also something that's, if you curse an authority unlawfully, and there, there are proper times to curse authorities, by the way. For example, if you kick the dust off of your feet after finding this heresy in a local church, and you go through the proper means of arguing to see that that heresy is corrected, when you kick the dust off your feet, that's a sign of curse, and it's good. And sometimes somebody who's not an officer has to leave a church in protest, kick the dust off their feet, and leave as a public protest. And when that has to happen, if you're in the right, it's a good work. If you're in the wrong, cursing authorities is a capital offense. Cursing parents, Leviticus 20, verse 9, and also Exodus 21, verse 17. Jesus then 
restates those in Matthew 15, 4 and Mark 7, 10. He restates those. This idea that this is a big deal. So cursing lawful authority is something that has to be avoided. It is a horrendous evil. Now, mocking, which is a kind of contemptuous imitation, a scornful or sneering treatment, is a really effective way of tearing down people's honor. You will notice if you uh, have people in the political sphere that are you know, they're disliked by a group, you, you can listen to the kind of radio or television of either group, and mocking is the most commonly used tool in those, in those media against political opponents. And what it does is it, it pulls down honor that would be given to them. It's, it's a way of undermining the kind of um, halo effect of office office would tend towards a sort of honoring. And so mockery is used as a countermeasure against the sort of public notoriety of the persons and the offices that they hold. So mocking is the preparatory work ordinarily for cursing and rebellion. Mocking is used to till the ground, to prepare it, to be fruitful in rebellion and cursing. And so we have to be careful to not personally participate in that against lawful authorities, but we also need to be careful to discourage others around us because bad company corrupts good morals. And so there's a danger to being constantly kind of infected with that. It's proper to mock unlawful authorities. When you mock a lawful authority, you are mocking the God who established that law order. When you mock an unlawful authority, you are mocking the false God. And it's sort of like it's a good work when I say the God of Islam is a fake God. Right? That's a good work. What I just said, it's a good work. I'm mocking the God of Islam. If I were to say the same thing about the God of the Bible, that'd be blasphemy. And so the same thing done to different targets can be good or evil. And so it's a very effective tool. And Christians oftentimes have a sort of weak-kneed response to mockery of our enemies. We couldn't really handle some of the things that the prophets said if pastors say them. And so if we read the prophets, if we're familiar with what Jesus said against the scribes and the Pharisees, the use of name-calling and mockery against evil is highly effective at showing them to be dishonorable when they are dishonorable. And so that's a sort of manly combat that is required of us. We have to have the discernment and the courage to boldly mock what is evil and be very careful to not mock what is good. Now, move to point 25, page 7. If you're under authority, here's a collection of words that require definition to understand for most modern readers. It's a bad thing to have refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and the one who's above them in government. Okay, what's refractory? Refractory carriage would be sullen or perverse disobedience. It's a sort of obstinate noncompliance. It's unmanageableness. Right? If you, at some point in your life, you've probably either seen or been unmanageable. You've been an unmanageable person or seen somebody else be it, right? And so this is a sort of, at best, right, after a lot of prodding, poking, and, and chastising, the sort of like 
you know, floppy obedience where you're like, fine, I'll clean my room. Like that, that, that sort of very slow obedience. Or it can be just a refusal, a, a way of kind of running and hiding and avoiding. So this sort of perverse opposition. Uh, scandalous carriage, you, you know, is, is carrying yourself in such a way as to give offense, to cause reputational harm, to bring shame or infamy. So what's carriage? Well, it, it's the way you carry yourself. It's the, it's the how you conduct your behavior. It's the deportment you have. So these, this idea of how do you carry yourself? Do you carry yourself in a scandalous way? If you do, it brings dishonor on the authorities over you. Do you carry yourself in a kind of unmanageable way? If you do, it brings shame on those who are over you in authority. So these things bring shame, and they cause the authority to be seen as vain, which causes people to look upon God's name as a useless thing. Because the word of God establishes authority, and if we reject lawful authority, it's a sort of rejection of his word as applied to that sphere. And it brings dishonor to God by a rejection of the authority structures he's given. Okay, so now if we look at the responsibility of superiors, here's the duties, the positive duties. We have this idea of it's required of superiors according to that power they receive from God and that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do do well, and discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill, protecting and providing for them all the things necessary for soul and body, and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage, to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and to preserve that authority which God has put upon them. So the one under authority needs to be very concerned about preserving the authority structure that God has made. The one who's in authority needs to be very concerned about preserving the authority structure that God has made. Notice that in both cases, there's a great concern for the office. And the person matters, but the office itself is the law of God. It's a part of the law of God. So the the office itself is for loving your neighbor. Love is seeking the good of your neighbor. When you seek the good of someone, you're using that thing to try to bring about what's good for them. And so we look at the law of God and we seek to, as prophets, priests, and kings, bless those who are under our authority. Now, if you're in office, you're supposed to be the one who's stronger. And if you're the one who's stronger, you need to bear with the weak. You need to bear their burdens. If you, if you are not behaving up to a certain standard, Fix that before you try to get the people under your authority to fix it. If you cannot take first the log out of your own eye, then you're going to have a really big problem in authority trying to take the speck out of other people's eyes. And so when you're in authority, there's an additional responsibility to check yourself. Because you're called upon to remove specks from other people's eyes, which means you better make sure your eyes are functioning well. Now, If you have authority over someone, to use your authority and then not pray for it to be effective in blessing them is to rely upon those means rather than relying upon God to make the means effective. So it is very important that you pray for those who are under your authority. If you 
chastise, if you reward, if you seek to do things with your authority, to be of good use to the people under your authority, but don't pray for them, you are leaning upon the means rather than God. Now, the Lord's Prayer gives to us categories to think about as we pray them towards individuals. And if you have a lot of people under your authority, you can pray for them as a group. But it's important to pray for the people under your authority. The ironic blessing is a great thing to look upon to think, what are the things I need to pursue for blessing and what prayers of blessing to lay upon them? Instruction, counsel, admonition. What we look at there is page 8 now. Instructing has to do with edifying, giving positive discipline. So just counsel, but it's more to do with the individual circumstances, right? You say, here's what's going on, here's the thing I would advise you to do. Admonition is rebuking, right? So you're, you're teaching what to put off. And so we have this general giving of teaching along with giving advice in particular situations and helping to see what should be put off. So we move into the means that are used to strengthen that. And this is how you train, right? This, this idea of, of more than just words. How do you also train? Well, there's positive encouragement, which involves a positive countenance, commending with words, and rewarding with goods or services. And there's negative encouragement, which is discountenancing, reproving, chastising. We ought to use positive encouragements more often than negative encouragements. If we don't, when we're in authority, especially the more closely connected you are in terms of your personal relationship, then the tendency is going to be to create resentment. And so if you have children, if you have servants, what you do is you put forward positive blessing and you use the positive blessing to help to create rapport and to show that you actually care about the person. If somebody doesn't think you care about them, they're not going to interpret the correction as being for their good. They're going to interpret it as, you don't care about me, you just want me to do whatever it is that you want. And so there's this tendency to alienate. You have to have the positive. And it's given by God. And so it's an ordinance that is used for good. So countenancing involves favor, goodwill, kindness. And how do people read your countenance? They, they read it by looking at your face, your features, your bearing, how much time you spend with them. So giving your presence and having your presence be one where you, where you give the impression by your face and your, the way you carry your body that you're giving positive presence, that has the power of drawing people in. You know, it's, it's amazing. If you just smile at somebody, the effect that it can have on their attitude towards you, you don't have to say any great praise. You don't have to speak very kind words. Just looking at the person and smiling. And that effect of smiling, of a positive countenance, is remarkable. It's also remarkable how frowns can discourage things. People pick up on the cultural cues of a group pretty fast, not even always by what people say, but just by how people's attitudes and demeanors appear to change in the face and body. We can read each other's discomfort pretty well. And so the, the negative piece, what you frown at, what you 
give the cold treatment to, what you remove positive presence from, has a very powerful effect, and it's more frequent than what you say. It's more frequent than what you say. So we are inclined to sort of just do those things unthinkingly, and I would strongly encourage you to remember, if you're an authority, you need to thoughtfully consider what do you give positive presence to, especially with children. If you have children under your authority, what positive presence are you assigning things to? So when you're, the things that you encourage, that you talk about frequently. So then there's sort of the praise, right? We move into the, the, the encouragement of words and the discouragement of words, what you rebuke versus what you praise. And it's, for me, you know, there's this kind of, it's funny, there's this pressure in our culture to kind of think everything's boring, right? And so if you praise something, it's like, oh, really, you think that's great? Like, there's this sort of, I'm too sophisticated to think that's impressive thing that's encouraged, especially in youth culture. And so if we praise things, we, are worry, we worry that it's going to come back to haunt us in some way as like, that guy found that impressive? Like, and so we need to push past that. If something's good, if it's better than what was there before, you praise it. You encourage growth. And so that pushing past is something that makes it so that you can build rapport and encourage people to stay in a place of loyalty towards authority. And so then rewarding. You know, it's, we, we emphasize in conservative Christian circles the idea of chastisement, and we ought to because the world hates it. But it's also proper, even in parenting positions, to reward things. So you know, one of the things we instituted in my house as a reward was when somebody memorized certain parts of the Shorter Catechism, we'd say, you know, here's a cash reward. Do this thing. Memorize this thing. When you complete that memorization project, there will be a cash reward. And so the idea that you are assigning rewards to good behavior that you want to see done, we, we tend to feel like, especially in the family, well, everybody just needs to do the thing. Well, they should do the thing. But you also, as a head of house, have the opportunity to bless by giving rewards. And so that will encourage and make it easier. It, it adds value to what you are saying is valuable. You know, to a certain extent, everybody knows that when you assign money to something, that you actually really value it. Right? And, and children, here's the nice thing about children, they're cheap, so you can typically get away with a dollar or something like that, right? And so when they get older and they go, no, I want real cash, Dad, right? That's when you go, fine, I've been saving up for that. It's been a lot of years. Thankfully, you didn't figure it out earlier. And so you just carry that on. All right, so the duty of protection. Those who are in authority are called to be a door, to be a wall, to be a hedge, right? A hedge slows down the ability to get through. A wall is something you're trying to guard to keep out entirely. And a door selectively allows entrance, okay? So the door, we are called as authorities... Mothers, fathers, employers, church officers, magistrates, all of them are called to seek to allow certain things in and to prevent other things from entering. And so this, this is a work of priestliness. This is that hedging off, that protection, having that which is holy versus common. There's a duty of provision that, you know, there are many things that are needful. And the people in authority have more resources, they tend to have more skill, they tend to have more wisdom, and they have networks to pull from to get what's needed for those who are under authority. You know, we, we, we have adopted the lie of our culture that we should just expect our children to go find a spouse somehow, 
preferably in a malt shop if you're conservative, or if you're less conservative, maybe a bar, right? And so that, that idea that you're saying, how do, we, how do our children find spouses? And parents ought to be involved in seeking to find networks and places where their, their children can have godly spouses. So being a part of a good church, interacting with people in your business network, looking for godly families and keeping an eye out and trying to create opportunity for those who are under your authority to make connections. And so that's a sort of provision that is not normally thought about in our time, but it was a very common thing to focus on for parents in times past. And there's very little you can do besides making sure you're providing the word on a regular basis to your children that will help to ensure their godly behavior into the future more effectively than helping to find a godly spouse. And so the work of provision applies to many things, but there's a place that's typically a blind spot in our own thinking. And then those who are in authority are called to grave carriage, wise carriage, holy carriage. And that grave carriage is is serious. We need to be serious-minded wise we need to know what's good for ourselves and then to pursue that with the lawful means applying the law of god we need to be holy in our carriage we don't want to tell our kids hey be real careful about who you hang out with and then spend our time with people who are a bad influence on us we in being holy have to be focused on the goal and set right boundaries as an example so this results in bringing glory to god increasing your own honor in your station and it helps to preserve the authority and stability of your domain. So these are the results of applying that. Now, the sins of superiors, I'm not going to explain as much as kind of go through it and help you to, to think about it. I've obviously highlighted sort of the, the key figures there. Uh, but the sins of superiors are beside the neglect of the duties required of them and inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure. So inordinate seeking of those things would be seeking those things over the glory of God and over the good of their subordinates. Commanding things unlawful or not in the power of inferiors to perform. It's very very careful. When you exercise authority, do you have warrant from the word of God to command this thing? And if you're not sure, don't command it. And if the person under authority objects and you can't prove to them that the law of God gives you that authority or makes it so it's right for them to do the thing, Pause and go study. Figure it out. It's your job to take on the burden of figuring that thing out. Be very careful to not impose things that violate the conscience of your subordinates. And if you can prove to them from Scripture, then that burden becomes theirs. They need to get their conscience in line with Scripture. Counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in that which is evil. Right? You can have a really powerful influence to create evil if you start rewarding it. You get more of what you subsidize. Dissuading, discouraging, or discountenancing them in that which is good. It's hard to do what's good already. It goes against the flesh, goes against the world. Satan resists it. If you and your position of authority start to discourage it, then you get less of what you tax. Correcting them unduly, careless exposing, or leaving them to wrong temptation and danger. Okay, so sometimes, for me, one of my temptations with correction is I'm letting stuff go, I'm letting stuff go, I overlook, I overlook, look how great I am, look how humble I am, look how patient I am, and then all of a sudden I go, that's enough! Flip the tables, right? And you start overcorrecting. And so that you, you've got to not unduly correct, not be overbearing in it. Uh, the, the careless exposing or leaving to wrong temptation and danger, how do we think about 
what we would want to avoid in terms of harms and temptations and dangers, if you're not willing to take that yourself, you can't command somebody else to do it. Now, there are times when you have to take the risk of wrong being done to you. You have to take the risk of a temptation. You have to take the risk of a danger. If you wouldn't be willing to take it if you were in the position, it is evil to demand it of somebody else under your authority. And so you have to evaluate that in terms of yourself if you were in that station. Now, provoking to wrath can occur by overcorrecting and also by undercorrecting. If you don't establish boundaries and you don't give rules that are clear, then you're going to provoke to wrath by the frustration of not knowing what you're supposed to do. Right? If you don't give clear enough direction to your kids, what's going to happen is you're going to leave them and you're not going to, you're not going to really help them to know what it takes to make you happy. And they're going to go, what do I need to do to make it so you're pleased with what I'm doing? And if you, so if you don't make it clear. At the same time, you can overcorrect and have expectation without investment. The dishonoring of ourselves in authority, the lessening of our own authority, can occur by being unjust, being indiscreet, being overly rigorous in our demands, or being overly remiss. Now, so being unjust, if you use your authority to make an evil judgment, don't give due process, right? You should not discipline people under your authority without hearing their case, right? Adam and Eve fall. God doesn't just run in and say, you're guilty. He has the right to do that, by the way. He's above the law. What he comes in and says, hey, where are you? What did you do? The answer is given, and then the judgment. Due process involves hearing what somebody has to say before administering discipline. Being indiscreet. You know, if you expose your subordinates' failings or your own failings, uh, if you give information that ought not to be given, the more authority you have, the more information you have about other people's problems. And if you overexpose those things, that destroys trust in you as the authority. And so you have to be careful about what you reveal. You can be over-rigorous in applying laws in cases where there ought to be an exception. So think about the Pharisees with the Sabbath. They would say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. That's what Jesus taught. Okay? So to not heal on the Sabbath and instead say that's evil would be being overly rigorous, overly rigid, not using the exceptions that God has revealed in his law. So being overly remiss, well, you know, the Sabbath guideline, this particular case, let's pay these people to do this work rather than having them rest. And, you know, I could see how serving ice cream cones to people and accepting pay would help people to enjoy the Sabbath more. It's a kind of resting, right? Being overly remiss, right? saying, trying to make excuses for not following the general rule ever. So, duties of equals. Equals need to regard the dignity and worth of each other. There's a tendency to either ignore equals as seeing there's nothing you can get out of them or to seek to control them or to compete with them. Giving honor to the other one and rightly praising what they actually have that are gifts, rejoicing in their gifts and their, own, and their advancements as though they were yours, that does not come naturally to men. But that's how you encourage 
a culture of honor, and that's how you enjoy the blessings of close friendship with peers. When people are looking for friends, they're looking for somebody who's willing to rejoice with them, and someone who's willing to cry with them. Right? If, if, if you have the same person who's willing to do both, then the probability is that you're going to build a very strong friendship. If people know that they can bring their troubles to you and you will seek to bear them with them, and if people know that they can bring their victories to you and you will be overjoyed with them, then that will help to build loyalty and bonds that allow you to work well with each other. And even if one of you then rises above the other in station, a willingness to honor and serve. You know, Jonathan, the son of Saul, the man who would be king, became the man who would not be king. He was a few decades older than David. He starts to engage with David, and he sees that he's the anointed one, and he accepts David as king and gives way and covenants with him as a friend. Imagine someone who's decades younger than you, and you're the heir to the throne, and you can joyfully acknowledge that they should receive the throne. Jonathan is a glorious example of that kind of friend. What are the sins of equals? The sins of equals are beside the neglect of the duties required, the undervaluing of the worth, the envying the gifts, the grieving at the advancement and prosperity of one another, and usurping preeminence over another. How do we avoid those tendencies? How do we instead seek to rejoice and honor each other? And the reality is, it's by thinking that that's what's good, it's good for me, it's good for the glory of God, that humility is the way to honor. Humility is the way to exaltation. When you acknowledge the real blessings and gifts of other people, then that tends toward your own honoring. And what's funny is we, we tend towards tearing down of real honors of other people because we think that that's the way to make ourselves look better by comparison. But the reality is that God's law teaches us that the tendency is the reverse. The wisdom of the world in that tearing down is foolish. Now, one of the things you'll read if you read like management books or networking books or whatever is they'll tell you just you know praise everybody because that gives that that gives this effect this effect. Some people have realized oh this is actually the effect when you praise people you look better. If you give disingenuous flattery, if you praise falsely, if you praise the people that you want to make sure to be associated with in a, in a flattering way, or just look for any excuse at any time to praise anybody, you will destroy the credibility of your own words. And that will collapse on itself too. So it's honest praise for real gifts and real honorable behavior. And that requires you to look for that. And if you have the attitude of looking for that, because you go, if I can find a real honorable thing here, then I can praise it and that will be a blessing to me. Then you're going to look at other people and look for the blessings of God in them. And it will help you to have a more positive attitude toward them which helps to preserve order and loyalty. So why has God commanded this fifth commandment? The reason given is that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's an express promise of long life and prosperity as far as it serves God's glory and your own good. For everyone who keeps this commandment. As a general tendency, where this is true, but here's the problem, we're all breakers of this law. And so this blessing is ultimately and 
and a guaranteed way obtained for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, keeping this law in our place and in our stead. As you consider all these commandments, I am sure many, many times your conscience has been pricked about failures in honoring. And so the law of God serves as a mirror to show us our failings and our need for salvation. We are reminded that this is useful to teach even to unbelievers because it restrains evil. Because cultural expectations and civil penalties are used to restrain evil. But furthermore, as those who are saved, already knowing, yes, we're guilty, but that we have the grace of God in Christ Jesus, that we therefore can now, out of gratitude, proceed to do good works for the glory of God. And so this should be a lamp unto your feet as you consider the applications of the fifth commandment and seek to walk by it. Our comments, questions, objections from the voting members of those with speaking rights? Mr. Kearney. So uh, the fifth commandment you were saying um, is probably is the most spoken about uh, commandment, or uh, has the most um, text annexed to it uh, from, from Westminster, but also from Scripture. Yeah, so in, in Romans 12 and 13 in particular, the fifth commandment is overwhelmingly the subject matter looked at. Throughout the scriptures, there are, there's more teaching in relation to the fifth commandment than any other commandment in the second table. And the Westminster Larger Catechism has the largest section on the fifth commandment over any other of the Ten Commandments. And the reason is because it's so complex. Because you think about, I am an equal to many, I'm an equal to everyone in some ways. I'm an equal to, I'm a, I'm a sub, superior to basically everyone in some ways. And I'm an inferior to basically everyone in some ways. And so understanding age gifting stations and thinking about what's appropriate in given situations for my behavior towards somebody, it's the most complex, um, and so it requires the most consideration, and it governs so much of our choices in life. And so it's not the focus of study in most churches, even though the scriptures have so much about it. Um, so that's what I was trying to say. And um, it's as far as the, um, the command for uh, civil magistrates to enforce uh, the law and uh, use it for good, as opposed to and to actually go after uh, evil. That would apply to every office, I'm assuming, where the the command is. Um, The, um, for he's the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that uh, doeth evil. For thirteen Romans 13, uh, 4, that's every office. The question is, does every, does every covenantal institution have an obligation to uh, minister vengeance? Uh, right. Okay. And the answer is no. Uh, the, the state ministers the sword as the institution for vengeance. Every office. Uh, every office of the state yeah that, that should be the, that's the legitimate function of the state it's the principal function of the state is that and and so the state's purpose is to do that it is to avenge and so the church uses the word of God and the keys and so censures are used for discipline but not for vengeance um, the state takes vengeance it uses the word of God and the sword for vengeance and it praises what's good. And then the household is to use the word of God and the rod. Right? So the word, the rod is not 
about vengeance, it's about discipline. And so, so you think about punishment versus discipline. Discipline is about teaching. Punishment is about, um, it's about retribution. It's about the reward of evil. Right. And um, it has a disciplining effect, but restoring harms and punishing are the higher effect and the, the higher purpose. So liberals will often say something like, we want to, you know, um, we want to reform criminals or whatever. We want, we want to, we want, you know, that's not the concern. The, the state's concern is not about that reform. It's about restoring to the one that's been harmed and taking a vengeance. Okay, anything else? Great, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching of the book of Romans about authority. We thank you for the pulling together of the teaching of the Westminster Assembly for us to consider as regards the fifth commandment and seeing the orderly and systematic teaching about that command. I ask, Father, that you would help us to consider these things, to meditate on the proof texts, to to when there's a place where there's a concern about the doctrine, to go and test that, to see if the scriptures really say this, if this is what is so, and that you would help us to know how to properly honor legitimate authority and how to not support unlawful authority. And so, Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right.